if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, we are going to be covering verses 17 and 18 this morning. And uh, to give us some context, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 6 um, all the way through 21. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 6, going through verse 21. This is what the word of the Lord says. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male and female servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out. I'm sorry. The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, welcome to part three of controversial and simple topics. <laughs> One of two, controversial and unsimple topics. We're going to be discussing this morning the commands, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery, verses 17 and 18. And um, there's many reasons why I think these fit together uh, pretty seamlessly. And I, I think part of what illustrates this for our, for our modern self is if you think about any of these mystery shows that go on on TV, Essentially, every episode has to do with the same thing. Someone's going to get murdered, and it's oftentimes because there's some sort of adultery going on. And I'm sorry, I know I just spoiled every TV show for the rest of eternity for you all, but I think this illustrates something that's important for us. Why, why would those themes always be so central to these stories and plots? And I think it's because these, these crimes, these situations are so utterly heinous and pivotal in destroying life. They're, they're monumental. They're consequential. And that's why they, they tend to be so um, fixating for us when it comes to entertainment. We have to understand that we need life. But we have to understand that that life is from God and it is for God. And we need to treat others in such a way that blesses them, that is in accordance with the God who gives life. And, and what we find is how we treat our spouses 
And how we treat even our enemies reveals much of what we understand about the God who is love. When we look at how we treat our spouses and how we treat even those who are enemies, it shows us whether we know love at all or not. The main point we're going to consider as we go through these two verses this morning is, is just simply that love cultivates life. Sin breeds death. Love cultivates life. Sin breeds death. And the context here helps us. We've been discussing much about these, these ten words, how just as God spoke at creation, he used words to create, and that creation was made to reveal the glory of God. Similarly, God is speaking here to Israel, revealing his glory to them, that they might similarly reflect his glory as creation was designed to do, as they were designed to do. And, and in addition to that, we're seeing here how this is really an expanding of God's divine name that had been stated in detail to Moses on the top of Sinai in Exodus 34. This is showing who God is. This is showing his character. Israel's being brought into the Holy of Holies to see the glory of God. And in seeing his glory, they are now being beckoned to reflect that glory by acting like the Lord their God. And, and we've talked about how these ten words can be summarized in two great commands, to love the Lord their God and to love their neighbor as their self. We see that summary, and we'll see it more as we go into Deuteronomy 6. We see this in, in Romans 13 as well. Specifically, the commands we're going to be going through this week and into next week, these commands are, are shown by Paul in Romans 13 to encapsulate loving your neighbor as yourself. So what God is doing is he's calling Israel to be like him in loving him and in loving others as God has loved them. So to kind of sum up where we've gone specifically with the first four words, we talked about how uh, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, includes not making an image, that they are to worship God properly. They are not to make an image, they are to be the image of God. And as those who are called to bear the image of God as a nation in covenant with God, they are to not bear his name as his covenant bride in a way that is vain. They are to act like the Lord their God in such a way that brings him honor, not depart from his commands and bring dishonor. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They must act like the Lord their God, their, their covenant head, and so reflect his glory. They are to imitate the Lord by doing their work for six days, but on the seventh day, they are to rest in their God. They are to enjoy how he is with them, they are to enjoy how he has provided for, for them. They are to be thankful for what their God has done for them. And then we saw that that pursuit of doing the work that God's called them to do and then resting in him on the seventh day is something that families are to do together. Mothers and fathers are to teach their children how to work, how to rest, and they are to teach their children to honor them, to obey them with respect. Because ultimately, what they're commanding their children to do is to love the Lord their God. So it is pivotal that children follow their parents' commands so they learn to do everything that's been encapsulated in these first four words, namely to love the Lord their God. Parenting is about a child knowing God, not about a parent in any significant way. So we are now moving into this uh, section at the end. The first four words, I think, are, are structured in such a way to show how Israel is to love the Lord their God and is to expand those four words and that love of the Lord their God to the four corners of the earth. To, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. That, that's what I think is going on there. These last six words 
like I mentioned, are focused on loving your neighbor as yourself. That there are six of them seems fitting as well because man was made on the sixth day. And there are now six words specifically about how you are to relate with man, how you are to relate with humanity and to thus love your neighbor as yourself. I think the structure here is also helpful for us understanding the thrust of what God's saying about loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 17, you shall not murder. And then verse 18, and you shall not commit adultery. And each of these last five has that conjunction and on it. And, and I think that's significant because what it's showing us is that when we sin, even if it's not necessarily murder, all of that sin is death producing. All sin is deadly. And the words here are instructive for that. Indeed, the wages of sin is death. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. All of these are adding on to this first command of you shall not murder. We are not to, to, to pursue any sort of taking away life from our neighbor in any way, shape, or form. It's interesting because you see that, that conjunction and in those last five words, that's not present in Exodus 20. Uh, so there's no and that should be translated in Exodus 20. And so it's interesting to think why now when God's rehearsing these 10 words in Deuteronomy 5, is he adding that conjunction? And I, I wonder if he is enforcing a point that Israel missed when he first spoke these words to them that they have now seen in the wilderness, which is that as they have sinned, as God tested them these 10 times, they sinned over and over and over again. What did that sin result in every single time? Death. I, he wants them to see this crucial lesson that they clearly missed before. All of their sin will lead them directly towards death. So God's making an emphatic point, but he's making it so that they would be blessed and that life would be preserved for them. So, verse 17. You shall not murder. Why murder first? Because this is the most heinous crime you can commit against another human being is to take their life away. To, to murder another human being is utterly anti-God. We talked about how God produces life. He creates life. Taking away life is the exact opposite of acting like God. We are made as image bearers. We are to reflect God's glory by doing similarly those things that would love our neighbor and help cultivate life that we would care for them. And if we were to say that we are taking the name of the Lord our God, but then act in such a way as to strike down one who bears the image of our God, we are taking that name in vain. We are to act in a way that is consistent with God. How can we say we love the God whom we have not seen if we hate our brother whom we have seen? And indeed, this crime is so heinous God says clearly in Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God has made humanity for adding life, for multiplying and filling the earth with more life that would, that would result in the glory of God being known throughout the earth. We are not made to divide and take away life. In John 8, 
we see a situation where Jesus is speaking with these Jewish leaders. And he is the perfect image bearer of God, speaking the very word of God because he is the word incarnate. And their response is to want to attack that image, to reject that word, and ultimately what they pursue is the death of that image bearer. And their thought is, I am my, my father is God. And what does he tell them? You are of your father, the devil. And why? Because they're acting just like Satan did in the garden. They are rejecting the word. They are seeking to destroy the image of God. That's exactly what Satan did in Genesis 3. Satan pursues taking away life. And we see with Cain this similar dynamic. God warns Cain that sin's crouching at his door. He ignores the word of God. And what results from that? The death of his brother. He is resistant to the word of God. His sin grows and results in murder. He is acting like a seed of the serpent. And this, we could spend literally all day just reading the Bible, example after example, the pursuit of death that comes with essentially any and all sin. And just to put it in some stark terms, what happens with Pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus? He pursues death to such an extent that he's killing babies. What is Herod's sin that we see so explicitly at the beginning of Matthew? He's pursuing his sin to such a degree that he's killing babies. The serpent is wicked, and any following of the serpent results in death, and even death in the most heinous ways. And obviously, like we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, the ultimate culmination of this, the greatest innocent who is yet still murdered, is Jesus Christ himself. We, we see a... a a symbolic picture of this in Revelation 12. That little slithering serpent who wants you to doubt the word of God, who's a deceiver, ultimately what he bears himself out to be is a dragon who's come to consume and destroy and kill. Satan is that dragon. He has come to destroy. And, And lest we think that this is not pertinent for us, perhaps we think, well, I've never murdered. So this... This doesn't have to do with me. I want you to consider here, the way that these words here, 17 through 21, are structured, they're causing us to look at these acts and zoom in on our very hearts. If you think about it, you're not to murder. That's an act. You're not to commit adultery. That's an act. You are not to steal. That's an act. Now look, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's words. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's right here and you you shall not desire your neighbor's house. That's right here. It is going straight into our desires and into our hearts and showing that these murderous acts flow right from here. That's what Jesus tells us in in the Sermon on the Mount. You see this in Matthew 15. All of these sin problems, they flow right from here. And none of us is exempt from that. So we shouldn't look at you shall not murder and think, I'm good. I'll keep on. No. No. Right here. We need to understand how our even our anger makes us liable to judgment, is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. We need a sacrifice to, exalt, to, to take our place in that judgment we deserve. And, and, and perhaps this helps illustrate how, how deeply we have to consider this. You shall not murder. That could also be understood to include manslaughter. So it's not just that you would not murder someone. It's that you would have to proactively avoid anything that could put someone else in danger. 
the preserving of life is woven into this verse, it seems. And so what we're seeing is God is the God of life, and his people must be those who preserve life. And that is why capital punishment, like, like we looked at in Genesis 9, that is fitting. Uh, even war, well, I mean, you can see this all over the Old Testament. Capital punishment and war are means of preserving life by removing that which is wicked. This is, this is God's standard, to preserve and protect life. And what's beautiful about this verse, I mean, that is a very short verse. You shall not murder. And uh, one commentator I was reading on this was uh, talking about how this is different than ancient law codes where depending on your gender or your ethnicity or your socioeconomic level, you might have more or less protections when it came to murder. What's God saying here? You shall not murder. No qualifications. Everyone is an image bearer and therefore everyone is precious and none of them may be murdered. God is the God of life and he shows compassion on every one of his image bearers and we must do so similarly. And this, this is an important point for us because even the image bearer who is in the womb deserves full protection and preservation. Because when we look at the doctrine of the image of God, it is not about an individual's ability or their viability. To bear the image of God, to be made in the image of God, means that God has made you to reflect his glory and his rule. Just like Nebuchadnezzar made that golden statue to show that he was the one who was ruling and he was the one who was glorious, though he did that in folly. It illustrates the point that God has made us to reflect his glory and his rule. And that is who we are. What we do is only a consequence of that. It is our ontology. It is who God has made us to be. We are his image bearer. The dominion that comes from being the image bearer is a result of being made in the image of God. I gave this illustration before. I hope it's helpful. A race car is a race car, whether it's in park or going 100 miles an hour. It is what it is. We are the image of God. It doesn't matter where we are located or what abilities we have. This is why even with the topic of uh, euthanasia, what, I, the person might be in extreme pain. They might want to die, but the only one who has the right to decree the beginning and ending of life is the one who gives that life. An image bearer cannot even take their own life because they are not bearing their own image. They're bearing the image of God, and therefore God alone has the right to end life. Abortion is murder, and it deserves capital punishment. Full stop, no exceptions. I, I understand people want to throw in these exceptions for um, incest and rape, but let me tell you, the solution to sin is not more sin. We will not make things better by continuing in a pattern of sin. In addition, we cannot vote for candidates who are pro-choice, who are for abortion. We cannot do that. Why? Because we would then be complicit in all of the acts that flow from that legislation, and therefore we would be complicit and murder ourselves. If we are Christians, we cannot vote for those who are pro-choice. You shall not murder. And you shall not commit adultery. Uh, I'm going to just start this section by saying a lot of what you're going to hear has been helpfully um, laid out for me before by Doug Wilson. So if you want to hear a, some better thoughts on this, because there's only so much I'm going to be able to cover here, 
Doug Wilson's going to have a lot of really helpful things to say on this topic, and I have to give credit where credit is due. So let's talk about this. And you shall not commit adultery. Let's think, first of all, about the nature of sexual attraction. Because what makes men and women attracted to one another is related to life. Um, What a man is attracted to in a woman's figure is that which nurtures life. What a woman is attracted to in a man's figure is that which can protect and sustain life, preserve life. And what we see is that God has designed these figures to come together and to produce life. And that's good. And this is where adultery is so sinister because its lie is to think that you can pursue sex, which God has designed to produce life, and think this is somehow good. Life comes from this act. It must be good. But it only occurs through a covenant-breaking, destructive act for the basic unit of life, which is the, the marriage covenant. That act of thinking I'm pursuing life only comes through a destructive course. A, a, a destructive course that, that is harming that unit from which true godly blessing is going to come. Uh, I hope you saw this when we were going through Hosea 4. God's telling them they're pursuing this whoredom and they're not going to multiply. They think they're going to pursue life. They're not going to find life through it. And, and I, I think that's, that's part of where we see this, this and word being so helpful. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. I think that's tying into this idea that adultery is a means not of pursuing life, but of pursuing death. Just like murder is a means of pursuing death. Adultery promises pleasure and life, but in reality, all that it delivers is destruction. And what makes this even more dangerous is that the seedbed for adultery seems so innocent at, at that little level, at that seed level. It seems to be benign. And it is anything but. There was a there's a situation probably seven years ago or something like that where this girl I had known in college, um, I, I, I was married at the time, she was married at the time. She emailed me and asked me some theological questions. Seems simple enough. I am grateful for, for God making me think, you know, why don't I just talk to Lindsay about this before I even start talking to her at all? And I talked to Lindsay about it. I emailed her back and I said, hey, I'd be glad to talk about those topics. Why don't, we, why don't you talk to your husband about these topics and we can set up a time where the four of us could do like a Skype call and we could all discuss together. I didn't hear back from her. And I don't know that she had the worst intentions in mind. But we have so many instances like that that seem innocent, but it's playing with fire if we start entering into it and start trifling with it. We have to be ready to not just flee the bed of adultery, but to flee the seabed of temptation itself. And what 1 Corinthians 6 lays out this dynamic for us, if you, if you join your body ultimately with someone who is not your spouse, because the Spirit of God is in you as a believer, you are defiling the very temple of God by that act of adultery. And so what we need to do is put on our running shoes like Joseph and flee that temptation. That's the same point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6. It is to flee the very temptation. Not to get as close to the end and then try to flee. It is to flee as soon as you smell the smoke. 
heart to hear and understand and get this right. Why don't we go ahead and turn over to Proverbs 5. Uh, the book of Proverbs, I've mentioned this at different points, and we'll talk about it more as we go through the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Proverbs, I think, is showing how the commands laid out in Deuteronomy filter into everyday life in a greater level of detail. Um, and specifically, it's focused on David and David's son. And as we consider that, we can see in David's life uh, some of the points that we've been laying out here. David commits adultery. And what ensues? Murder. Death. Destruction. And, and it not just for him. He has sons who will pursue the same sort of sexual immorality. And what will result from that? Murder, death, destruction. So when we look at the book of Proverbs and how David has likely influenced it, we should understand that this is the word of God and the author has, the, the human author has knowledge of what is being said personally. So Proverbs 5, we'll look at verse 3 and go through verse 6. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. And look at this. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. The adulterous woman doesn't even know where she's going. Why would you follow her? This is what we have to sell ourselves. We have to understand. It's going to look very enticing. It's going to look very good. She doesn't even know where she's going. She's going down to death, and she doesn't realize it. Flip over to Proverbs 7 with me. Verse 10, and behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So, no, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Did you catch that? She has made sacrifices and fulfilled her vows. She is saying, I am spiritually good. This is how deceptive adultery can be for us. Someone who seems to be on the good side spiritually, and yet they're lying. This is sinister and treacherous. She says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from, or colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. She's telling you, I'm spiritually in the right. We have plenty of time. This is going to be great, and we're going to get away with it. We have to understand, it's not about how good the situation looks to our eyes. We have to keep the word of the Lord in our minds and in our hearts to say, nope, no. I'm, we're not going to have a discussion here. I'm going to run away. I, I'm not going to say goodbye. You can you know, see the bottom of my shoes as I'm running. That's fine. 
we think somehow we can commit these sins and even get away with it. We're rest assured those sins are going to find us out. Flip over to Proverbs 6. Verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. You're going to get find out, found out. There's no avoiding our sin. It will find us out. We're going to get a beating and dishonor, and our disgrace will never be removed. Adultery leads unequivocally to death. And if we think, well, I might be smarter than that guy, that husband whose marriage I'm defiling, in the end, we will not get away with it. God sees all. And God will call us to account for our works. Because of the destructive nature of adultery, God says, and we'll see this later in Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Adultery is a means of death. And we see this, this idea of marriage breaking, marriage division, leading to death all the way back in the garden. Because how does Satan do that, that death-inducing temptation? By dividing the woman from the man and then usurping the authority structure from which she would be protected. He comes to the woman, tries to make her be in this position of, of straying from her husband's leadership so that he will follow her along. And both of them acting like God can be underneath them while they do whatever they want. And the order God had given where God reigns over all, man was to be his image, his wife is his helper, and they were to have dominion over the creatures. That's flipped right upside down because they're following a creature rather than God. This is what Satan does. He pursues death and he does it so often by usurping marriages and usurping authorities. And the interesting thing, that Revelation 12 passage I was talking about, where, where Satan show, is, is shown to be this devouring dragon, who is he attacking? The woman and her seed. He has, at every point, continues to attack God's people, specifically at this level of marriage. And I think that's part of the imagery there in Revelation 12. We need God to protect us from this. None of this is strong enough to, to take this on ourselves and to wrestle it to the ground. That's why we have to flee from it. We're not sufficient. And God is gracious and patient and sovereign. And he gives us that power. And he also gives us strategies so that we can fight this war on all fronts. So I want to take some time to consider how do we fight this battle on all fronts. So I'm going to give some, some general ideas they're not necessarily going to fit for everyone. It's not going to fit for everyone in every moment. Even. But I'm going to try to give us some general principles and tools so that we can play both defense and offense when it comes to this topic of adultery. So I'm going to start with the men. Men, we have to understand the godliness and necessity of self-control. We have to understand that that is an essential part of being a man, is having self-control. Sex is good. I will not shy away from that. But sex is not ultimate, where it is, our desire is supposed to drive us. God is the one we follow, not our desires. I, you've probably heard this sort of argument. I, I had someone who literally said this to my face. 
you really think with all the desires that men have that they were made for monogamy. And there's just so many things to say to that, and I'm going to say a few. One of the, th- the things that's astounding is just um, this, this sort of hypocrisy that goes along with that. Because I wanted to say, do you think you, you really want to transpose that standard onto your girlfriend? Are you cool with her going off and doing whatever she wants? I don't think so. That's so often, we were talking about this yesterday, that's so often how we do it. We have a standard for ourselves, but then a standard for other people. That's hypocritical. Additionally, the, the, the folly of thinking that, yeah, I can go follow the adulterous woman who completely dishonors my current marriage covenant and think that she's going to somehow in the end be faithful to me. If she's been unfaithful here, what makes you think faithfulness is ever going to come from that? In addition, to think that men should pursue polygamy and immorality because we have these desires. What comes from pursuing those desires in that immoral, sinful way? Disease. Broken homes. Broken hearts. Were we made for that? Certainly not. And I think in our day and age, too, we... we, we want to assume, you know, there's this alpha male who, who, who has everything going on. Look, he's good looking. He's got all this money. He's, he's uh, suave. Um, and, and he might be able to sleep with a ton of women. And our culture wants to think, wow, he's, he's some sort of powerful man. And the profound weakness of that man is he can't even control his own body. He is allowing whatever woman he finds attractive to just lead him along like a dog. There's no strength in that because there's no self-control. There's the lack of godliness and the revealing of utter weakness. This is similar too to, to the problem of pornography. It, it necessitates a letting go of self-control that is not that is the letting go of self-control is not befitting a man of God. It is not fitting. And in addition to that letting go of self-control that is anti-masculine, there's several other components that are completely anti-masculine that are associated with pornography as well. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Pornography itself is an escape from where we are present. Men aren't made to escape. We're meant to stand our ground and take dominion. And in addition to that, pornography is not only an escape, it's an escape into passivity. We are made to stay present where we are and actively take dominion. And that's where uh, Doug Wilson talks about it as not even being a beta male thing to do, but a gamma male thing to do, because it is just so utterly anti-masculine. Pornography and all sexual immorality must be cut off, and decisively so, lest death and destruction come upon us. And you see how unsatisfying it is. You have these sexual desires, you pursue um, gratifying them through immorality, and it never works. That's why this pit keeps getting returned to over and over. It won't work because it will never satisfy because it is not of God. And that sin is going to grow. We like to think that little, some sin that we think is little is going to stay that size. Sin does not stay the same size. It grows. And it grows perversely. It seems like a little serpent. And then it becomes a many-headed dragon far quicker than we realize. I think it's worth noting in a positive sense. It's far more masculine to commit ourselves to one woman in marriage and have great sex with her a thousand times. That is far more masculine than being that, that alpha male 
who can just have sex one time with any woman he thinks he can. That's not masculine. To control yourself in marriage, to master self-control, to master loving your wife in a pleasurable and faithful way, that requires true godly masculinity. It is a blessed task and calling. And for us as men, we have to understand that oftentimes this is the case where our appetite for sex is different than our wife's appetite for sex. And we have to have the self-control to accommodate that in a loving way. And and part of how we can help our wives in this is by seeking to spend, like we talked about in the the last couple weeks, seeking to spend ample time with our families, with our wives. So with our wives and our children all together, spending ample time with them. And that allows us to seek to nourish our wives with the word, to romance them by loving them and being their best friend, by being there to raise our children and, and to, to not force that burden onto them solely, it allows us to be there and romance our wives in all the little ways that matter so much to them. And we must take up that task with self-control and love, seeking to be like our God. Ladies, I'm not going to leave you out. So um, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 7 that regular Marital sex is a great means, a great aid and help in protecting spouses from sexual temptation. Um, from, from, so, so sex happening regularly is a great way for you to help your husband be protected from Satan's attacks, to help protect him from the adulterous woman. So there's not a hard and fast rule on this, but what I would encourage is seeking to make yourself as available as possible for your husband. And even in those situations where his appetite outpaces your appetite and he's wanting more sex with you, there's a way to to communicate through that with him and at the same time rejoice that his desire is for you. So in in addition to to helping that, it's good, I think, for a woman to consider what what could happen help us in our marriage bed to, to make sex more enjoyable for the woman and then for you to communicate that to your husband, for you to be his helper in every area, including how to pursue better sex together. And if you're still in Proverbs and you think I've gone crazy, please go over to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5.15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Sex should be enjoyed. And sex is a gracious gift of God that allows us to be protected from Satan's attacks upon marriage. We should not be embarrassed to talk about sex, whether in the church or within our own homes. 
And indeed, if, if a couple who is married is not having some level of regular sex per 1 Corinthians 7, they would have to be rebuked by the church. That is the standard. Paul tells them you cannot be apart for too long. And in addition to being open about sex, if you really consider, sex within a Christian marriage should be the best sex experience in the world because there's no greater intimacy that a husband and wife uh, can have than to be in Christ together. That is the ultimate intimacy that can be experienced, to be a husband and wife who know the Lord their God in Christ and to be able to enjoy that together. And then what they, they are working out in their marital intimacy is the gospel intimacy of Christ with the church. So they are both experiencing the gospel together and then portraying the gospel together. And that, I think, shows us that Christian sex is glorious. It is a means by which we can show the world, and especially those in our household, our children, what it means to live the good life as Christians. We can show our children just how wonderful it is to be married and how much we love our spouse and show them how that is reflecting how even better the gospel is for them. I love my boys so much. They are a gift from God. Boy, do I love Lindsay Moore. And that's how it should be. We are able to convey the gospel by that sweetness within marriage. So if I was going to summarize what I've talked about and try to, try to boil it down, I would say a biblical understanding of marriage uh, necessitates that we understand that marriage must be, or, or a marriage, biblical marriage cannot just be romance without sex, nor can biblical marriage be sex without romance. They must be wed together. That was a free pun. You're welcome. But, but it is true. This is what God's showing us. We are to love one another. We are to, to see romance and sex joined together in Christian marriage and so display the gospel. And that, I think, drives us towards the ultimate problem with adultery, is that it is ultimately against God. To, to pursue adultery and the death that ensues is obviously a departure from the God who is covenantally faithful and the God who gives life. Adultery is breaking covenant. It is destroying life. I hope you saw it when we were going through Hosea 4. There's all kinds of adultery and whoring going on here between the people and God and within the marriages within the covenant community. And what this is showing us is that to break your marriage covenant necessitates that you break covenant with God. Because God commands that you would love your spouse and that you would love your spouse faithfully. To choose to depart from that marriage covenant is to depart from covenant relationship with God himself. And we see how that works itself out. In Exodus 32, the people... And just like Adam, they want this animal that they can come under and worship and follow. And what ensues? They rise up to play, which could very well mean that they're rising up in sexual immorality. Their departing from God leads to departing from their marriages. Same thing in Numbers 25, but in reverse order. These Moabite women come and entice uh, the Israelites into whoring and into the sexual immorality. And what results from that? They follow them into idol worship. Adultery is so sinister because it is built on adultery against God. And so no shock then that death ensues from it. We must be faithful to God. We must love the Lord our God. We must love our spouses as God has commanded us and be faithful to them. 
we must so enjoy the love of God that we then seek to love our neighbor as ourselves and not seek to devour them, whether that means murder, whether that means attacking their family unit and their marriage covenant. We must rejoice in God's love and so love one another. If you're like me, you're thinking about all this and you're like, how am I sufficient for all this? And, and if you're not, I would encourage you to consider what, what Jesus does have to say about this. That heart of anger you have, that's going to bring you under the same sort of judgment that the murderer is going to experience. And you know, the next thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, that lustful look, that's adultery that's already commit, been committed in your heart. We are all guilty of, these, of, of breaking these commands in some form or fashion. We have all betrayed God, betrayed our spouses in some ways. And so in a way, we're all adulterers and we're all murderers. And even if we think we've only, you know, maybe I've only broken one of them. James 2 tells us if we've broken one, we've broken them all. We all stand before God guilty. But the grace and glory of God is that he is a faithful covenant head. And he sent his son to be the bridegroom incarnate. He came and he fulfilled the commands here in Deuteronomy 5. He came and did these commands that we cannot keep. And because he has fulfilled these commands, he can forgive every breaker of these commands. So that means even those who are, are guilty of, of breaking these commands, these most heinous crimes, these worst sins, even if the person who has murdered who has perhaps had an abortion, who has voted for a candidate who is pro-abortion, or someone who has committed adultery, they can be forgiven and they will be forgiven if they will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And this is not just because God is some good custodian. This is his plan from eternity past. He has planned that he would take his people and redeem them out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that darkness is not just cutesy imagery. That is real, palpable darkness that is originating from sin. Even these sins. And God still redeems us out of those sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And even in 1 Corinthians 6, like I mentioned earlier, when Paul's list listing out all these different sorts of sins, He's saying such were some of you. What that means is the redemption Christ accomplishes on our behalf is such that we are no longer guilty for those sins, nor do those sins define us. They are not our identity. Paul, consider, Paul in Acts 26 lays out that in his persecution of the church, he cast votes to have believers delivered up to death. He was complicit in murder to some degree based off of Acts 26 is how I take it. And what does he say? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And he's saying that as someone who not only didn't love God properly, he tried to destroy the very church of God, murdering its members. Christ Jesus came into the, save, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Every sinner 
even the ones who have broken these commands in the most heinous ways, can and will be forgiven if they repent and believe in this Savior. This is God's plan. He has planned to save sinners out of real darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Not to the king of the ages, that mortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. That's showing us that, that last section of 1 Timothy 1 is showing us that God meant this to happen for his ultimate glory and to bless every type of sinner. And lest that sounds too good to be true, consider Jesus went to the cross and was himself murdered. And that taking taking murder on himself, taking on capital punishment himself, he's taking that, that, that fitting consequence for, for murder and for adultery. He paid that price. It's paid. So when I'm telling you there's full forgiveness to be found in Christ, it's because that has been fully paid. And because he took that death on our behalf, we can now have eternal life in him. His bride, who would be comprised of so many adulterers, is now made spotless and pure and clean because of his blood. And through his intimacy with his church, he is bringing home children for God. And what will be the end of this? Marital bliss in the presence of God. The bride will be with her groom forever. There will be no serpent. There will be no sin. There will be no death. There will be no destruction. And everyone who repents and believes will find eternal life and true, glorious, covenant love from the triune God. Such that we can love others. We can love our spouses, even forgiving them for adultery. We can love our enemies as well. Those who might seek to murder us and love them and show them the very love of God. And in so following our Lord and Savior, we are going to show an incomparable glory of love that is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the whole earth is going to be filled with that glory.